2: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today.
3: Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time.
1: Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 28 of Ancient Office Hours. In this week's episode, I got to chat with a fellow Mizzou Tiger, Dr. Jeff Stevens, a professor of ancient history at the University of Missouri. Since 2008, he has served as the assistant field director and numismatist for the San Martino Archaeological Field School in Italy, his current monograph, Servile Tradition and the Myth of Liberty in Ancient Rome, explores how Rome's imperial success was built upon an effective application of the social institutions of family and slavery that regulated power relations within Roman society, and how conquered peoples were required to accept their subjugated status within the larger familia that compromised the Roman state. He also served as one of the historical consultants on the Stars of Spartacus series. I was excited to speak with him about his very unconventional path into ancient history, his experience of being a historical consultant for Spartacus, and how to educate people who misappropriate or misunderstand ancient Roman symbols. He even delved a little into his time as a non-traditional grad student at UCLA and shared the heartwarming story of how his daughter met Dr. Kara Cooney. Enjoy this episode, and I'll speak to you all soon. Thank you for joining me this afternoon. If we could just start out with, how did you get into classics?
2: This is a very long and complicated story because of my kind of unique background compared to a lot of different um, classicists. Did not have hardly any exposure in any of my early schooling. And I was born and raised on a farm in a place in the middle of nowhere in Oregon, that did not have access to what you would call the best of school systems. Let's just put it that way. That said, I was identified very early on as one of the best students, you know, in all levels of schooling up through high school. But basically being born and raised on a farm, my interest in antiquity came naturally, but it was completely built up by whatever I wanted to pursue. I did always have an affinity for ancient history. It just kind of stuck with me for some reason. You know, I always, even as a young child, wanted to play like Roman legionary and these other things. So that was always there, but there was no access whatsoever in my environment growing up, literally out in the fields most of my life, up until I was 17 or 18. I then did go to a pretty good um, liberal arts school in Southern California. But even when I went there, I did not actually study classics or history or ancient history proper. I did the practical thing as advised to do by then. And I went into business with an economics degree, poli sci double major. I just knew that I did not want to be a farmer. And having had this opportunity to go this very good liberal arts school in Southern California, I did the thing that was supposed to be practical. That said, I did not have a passion for business or being an investment banker or some of these other things. And what I actually excelled in even though it was not in my major, were my history courses and a lot of my other courses that would integrate different aspects of antiquity. I had some courses where we did do a lot with Alexander the Great. Other courses where I was exposed to these different concepts in kind of the classical tradition, but it was not my major. I kept thinking, okay, what I want to do is go out, get a job, make money, do this and that. Economic situations happen, and I did not actually use that undergrad degree in any significant way and had to go back to my small farm town with very limited opportunities. And I wound up in the military. And this is where things kind of don't want to say it's fate or anything like that, but things sometimes just emerge that provide different opportunities and different avenues. And so I went into the military for a variety of reasons, but some of which were to get out of my hometown. Not long after... I was in the military. I was actually deployed out of my base in Fort Stewart, Georgia, over to the Middle East. And so my first time really out of the country in any significant way, I'd gone into Mexico a couple of times before. But my first real experience out of the country for an extended period was military deployments onto the border of Kuwait and Iraq. This was in the mid-90s. It was after the first Gulf War. Saddam Hussein had actually moved up some divisions to threaten Kuwait to kind of test what President Clinton was doing. And I was one of the very early planes out, deployed out of a rapid deployment base to kind of give a show of force that there would be a response. And I had to stare at those sands of the Middle East for months. With very little out there, I was at the very front edge of what was going on, sleeping either on the M1 ambulance tanks or on cots in the sand, staring at sand in my own head, in my own thoughts, in this area of the world that has this you know, ancient history in all of these different ways, but just kind of staring out at that. And after months of being deployed there, when I was finally brought back out of that situation, flew in kind of low on military transport up over the Italian um, countryside, And kind of slow banked into Rome, and I remember thinking to myself, staring out the window, we had kind of our own cleared airspace, and I could see kind of the toe of Italy, and I started having these thoughts about, okay, Spartacus and the stories of being trapped down there on the toe, and, you know, all of those things. And so things that I was familiar with, but not specializing in, after being stuck in the sands of the Middle East, literally staring at sand for months, then I was dropped right back in to Rome for a brief time before returning um, to the United States on deployment. So there was a bit of, you can imagine the impact that that would have, shall we say, that when you're in one environment and then you're brought back in, you know, kind of from that and your first real exposure my first exposure to Rome was in that context. Then I came back to the United States, life goes on. And I got married, had a young child, could not use my degree, was out of the military and actually wound up working alignment on power lines and had a young child had to do what I was needing to do was making good money but when that was going on I actually was injured very significantly at work and fell about wasn't a complete free fall but it was a very high velocity fall for about 40 feet and fractured all elements of my body and multiple levels of my spine could not walk for a very long time knew that I could not continue on with that particular career, and I had a young child. Once it took them a long time to get me walking again, different attempts were made to do um, different things rehabilitation-wise. Finally, spinal fusions happened and everything else. Due to a lot of different factors, I knew that a career change had to happen, but I was dealing with a lot of these uh, kind of you know practical issues with a young child. My marriage had come to an end due to a lot of this chaos but I was literally lying in a bed, unable to walk and having to make some decisions about how to go forward. And once they got me up and walking, my immediate move was to go back to school and get a post back. I did that at the University of Oregon, still recovering. I could barely walk when I first got there, but there was kind of a rapid decision-making process to continue on with my education. And I had been identified young as a very, very good history student. I had high school teachers comment that I was one of the best that they had in decades. And so I decided to go back and get a post back in history, but not ancient history yet. And as I entered, barely able to walk, I was late in the cycle for admission, was dealing with a lot of different physical issues. And I had to take kind of what classes were open. And when I enrolled, there was kind of an an intro to the ancient world slash Western civilization class that I entered into. And then I was briefly, enrolled based on allowance into a class on the French Revolution. Well, what happened is that French Revolution class had some issues, and somebody dropped out of an ancient Greek history class. When that opened up, I went in, and so after years and years and years away from academia in any way, I was probably eight years away, I entered into that ancient history class in Greek and just started to kind of explore my interests there. And I was able to do a lot of different work with a post back in ancient history and classics. Started to take Latin, started to take Greek. Basically started to do so well that I was coming out on top or close to the top of a class of 400 history students. And over in classics, as I was taking that, those were slightly smaller group. but I was holding my own, having never had any Latin or Greek yet whatsoever. And I was in my early thirties. But as I started to get more into that, I was getting better and better and better. And I did start to show up at the very height of some of this. And I was then basically recruited into graduate school at that, um, but knowing that I could probably not go for a PhD there in classics. They had kind of a terminal classics program. And I was able to get a master's in ancient history and do very well there and just kind of continue to progress with my work. And then I did wind up going on down to UCLA and starting the process again there and after seven years did achieve my PhD there. So it's a long, very long story with a lot of different um, issues, but I'm a unique case in that my languages were assimilated very late, and I had done a lot of different things before I went back into the study of classics and ancient history.
1: I think it's good because it serves as a really good case study in you don't need to go the really conventional route because I think a lot of people put pressure on themselves to go the conventional route, so... When I was at Mizzou, there was never any question of get their BA, and then they were going to apply to grad school, and then they were going to go and have this very traditional linear path. It's kind of shocking now thinking back on it, how there's such a lack of discussion around what kind of options you can do if you don't feel you're ready to go to grad school yet, or if you don't know. I don't think that people talk about how, oh, it's, it's okay if you don't want to do this right now. You can go back later. It just seems so predetermined. <laughs>
2: I will say that I do think my case is relatively unique when I look around in the field. So I do acknowledge that. And I would not you know, advise anybody to kind of go the route that I went. I had a lot of different situations going on simultaneously. But what I did find, having tried different things when I was younger, having done different majors, had military experience, came from a farming background, I was the first person in my family to ever even get an undergraduate degree of any level of significance. So it can be done. But I think that what I learned, even not using my initial degree, like I had hoped, is that to have a passion for something will allow you to engage with it at a level where certain opportunities will arise. And when those opportunities arise, you do have to realistically evaluate can you take advantage of these opportunities in my situation now as I sit? And that is an ongoing process. And I do think that all students at all levels need to think about that because there are so kind of few positions in the classical track as it's described. And and that is going to continue in a process of transformation now, as we see with all of the changes with academia. But I do think that success needs to be measured for an individual based on what they have access to, what opportunities they can see for themselves, where their interests lie. And a lot of times they will be more successful if they actually do pursue their interests, but they do have to make sure that what they're assessing about themselves is realistic, if that makes sense to you. Like, so you understand what I'm saying with that, that your eyes have to be open to what can be done or can't be done, but you also have to go after a lot of different opportunities. And how I wound up in my situation, there were a lot of things that almost seemed random. And then other things were a particular opportunity arose at a very, very particular time that I was able to take advantage of and parlay that into other opportunities. And it was never going to be for me this kind of straight progression through or you know how typically most classics um, students or most ancient history students would be advised to progress. But there are a lot more opportunities out there than people think, too, that don't confine yourself to one way of thinking as terms of what success is or isn't, or how these, you know, how the study of classics and antiquity can actually be applied in a lot of different contexts. So I think that that is important.
1: So could you tell me a little bit about what it was like being single father in a grad program out at UCLA? I know that must not have been easy. How did you manage?
2: It was... Wonderful and challenging at the same time that I am so lucky to have such a wonderful daughter that did not ever pose as many problems, probably as many <laughs> a teenage girls might at, at various points. But it was incredibly challenging due to the time constraints, trying to manage all of this, coming off of a significant injury, coming off of a divorce, and then having full custody of my daughter. But it also afforded a few opportunities for her that were very incredible. And one notable one that comes to mind is early in my graduate student career there, Madeline had seen probably something on the History Channel. And she was really big into Egyptology and tried to teach her everything, you know, teach herself really about everything about Egypt early on. And she saw uh, Professor Kara Cooney on the History Channel doing something on Ancient Egypt. And then when I was at UCLA, Madeline knew that Professor Cooney was there. And so I contacted Kara and I asked her, can I actually bring my 10-year-old daughter, I think Madeline was 10 at the time, into the class to just sit in. Kara was so gracious with what she did. She allowed Madeline to go in there, hear this wonderful lecture. I think, if I'm not mistaken, that Madeline either asked a question or responded to something briefly in a fairly large class um, with undergrads and grads, if I remember. And then uh, Kara was uh, so gracious with her time, even after we had a very brief meeting with her in her office where she was able to interact with my daughter for a while. And that made such a wonderful impression of, on my daughter. And I don't even know if Kara will remember this, but just a small interaction like that from somebody that is established or has a certain profile can impact, you know, younger people in so many ways. And my daughter will probably never forget that experience and it is just a you know kind of wonderful thing. And I am very grateful to a variety of very prominent scholars that have met with my daughter in various capacities and just been so wonderful with her. But that, that meeting with Kara just stands out briefly. And it was not much, but it had such a great impact on my daughter. I think that's important that when you are of a certain profile or have a certain public stature, or even in the scholarly world, even a small amount of time taken to interact with somebody, you don't know what kind of effect that might have in the future in inspiring somebody in a particular way. And I've had so many wonderful interactions myself with various scholars. And then in terms of being a single father at UCLA, I was on a couple of occasions even able to facilitate taking my daughter into the field in various capacities when she was 14, And then she was also able to go on a different trip to, to, I think, Paris for her 16th birthday. So I never want my daughter complaining about she wasn't able to do stuff. Even when I was in grad school, she had a lot of different opportunities. And so it was challenging being a single father. A lot of sacrifices had to be made by me, by my family. I had a lot of assistance from my family, but it turned out well, all things considered. But I would not advise anybody to try to go through a full PhD track. As a single parent, if at all possible, it's just one of the most challenging things ever, but it was a unique experience that, you know, had so many positive aspects to it.
1: Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And I definitely, one thing that I've always heard was, is to this day, people will forget what you say. People will forget what you do. People will never forget how you make them feel. That must have just been so special and so wonderful because I also grew up watching Kara's show on the Discovery Channel just thinking oh this lady's like really cool she's a professor Uh, I'd love to take a class one day or something and then when I finally did meet her long after I was a little girl it was still a special experience I saw her at a a lecture and uh, I just said yep this is really cool so your daughter was very lucky to have been able to sit in and meet her at such a young age. Some of the best advice that I've heard advisors and other professors say along the way was never turn your nose up at any opportunity, no matter how small or random it seems, because they might lead you to something you really do like or want to do or lead you to discover something you didn't know you liked. And I think that holds true to this day. I would still say to anybody, someone offers you a random thing, say yes. Don't say no. Don't turn your nose up at it because, oh, that's not what I want to do. Like, that's stupid. So you definitely had a later entry and a really interesting path. And it took you a while to find your footing and what you really were interested in. So once you decided, okay, I'm going to go back to school and I want to do the degree in this, would you consider yourself a proper ancient historian with a strong focus on Rome? Or would you actually identify yourself as a classicist?
2: I probably would be classified, classify myself and be classified by most as an ancient historian. And I am a bit more broad in the different aspects and different cultures that I do bring into that historical analysis. And and I've been cultivating that. So what I've done is while I was trained younger in a much more specialized Roman emphasis, I have actually continued to expand that out, trying to evaluate what the environment of ancient history and classics looks like. And so I, I have gone a bit more over into world comparative approaches, using a lot of kind of the the modeling of Walter Scheidel and figures like that, where I can do a lot of that. But I was originally trained more with a strong Roman emphasis. So it does depend on which period of my career you're looking at. And I am adapting as things continue to go on. So that is a reality. One thing that also is a bit unique for me, and it is also a bit of one of those things where an opportunity may arise in a strange way. My first year at UCLA as a grad student. I did have a master's and and then entered UCLA and had to get another master's and then another degree. And then, then the PhD, you know, because you just start stacking up degrees when you start moving to these various programs. But the goal was to get the PhD. And it was specifically in ancient history. Along the way, my level of classical training and the philological issues that were beat into me in terms of Latin and Greek uh, from some of those figures could be pretty extensive. So I have my own, um, you know, kind of dynamics in terms of kind of proper classical philological training um, in that that was required, especially when I was at an advanced age coming in and you know assimilating that compared to a lot of people that would have had access to that younger. And so I did get uh, more and more proficient with that as time went by. But when I first arrived at UCLA and I was entering into that program, get my PhD in ancient history, taking a lot of classes in the classics department as well, I wound up getting access to this archaeological tract so in addition to my ancient history my archaeological footprint and the years that I've actually spent doing field archaeology is now basically over 10 summers long it's only been disrupted by COVID that really from that first kind of year I was able to gain access to an archaeological field school and every single summer up until this COVID pandemic I had been digging in central Italy and taking students in a variety of capacities on various places But how I actually was able to secure that archaeological field school access as a young grad student um, was a bit odd in that I was at a meeting kind of for incoming people. And there was a new classicist that was brought in that did specialize in archaeology. And she was kind of in her first year there. And I did not know her yet. But at the time, there was kind of a gathering of different you know, incoming students, faculty members, just kind of a meet and greet. But it was also attached to when the nomination process was going on before the presidential election and General Wesley Clark was actually speaking like in you know, a building right next door to where this event I was in was and I was out back doing something and he came out back for a break after you know, he's running for president, doing all of these talks, he comes back out for a break. And I think that I had served under him possibly in one capacity or another in various locations. And I went up and struck up a conversation along with my main advisor, who I just kind of met recently, and we were having a good conversation. This other young professor, she came over and heard some of this conversation and came in and, and learned a little bit about my military background. And she had access to a field school. And she made the decision that I might be a very good grad school candidate to take into the field, for a variety of reasons, including driving just practical things in the field that are needed on some of these archaeological field tools. And I was a bit older and more mature. And I think that that was a selling point when you are taking a lot of 18 to 23 year olds into the field. Is it also a good idea to have a few 28 to 32 year olds in the field along with the older professors? That way you kind of have different levels of maturity in the field to deal with different things that arise. And so that weird conversation with somebody running for president facilitated a different conversation. And that is actually how I was placed on staff at a field school. The person that placed me there then departed to go do other things. But I will actually be grateful for her for that because I then met the the current DIG director that I have and her husband. And her husband's a Native Italian. Liz is, um, you know, American. And and I've been digging with them every summer since, in various collaborative capacities. And my dig site there has off and on habitation that goes back at least four thousand years on the same hill, um, maybe even quite a bit farther than that. And then it has elements of a you know Roman villa as well. It's just been that one choice for me to go engage in a conversation with somebody running for president that I might have served under is actually what gave me access early, Mike Real, to an archaeological field school. So. Sometimes one decision that you make on the spur of the moment, if you can take the right advantage of that opportunity, can have a great impact. And out on, you know, once I was able to get my degree and go out in the job market, I don't just bring ancient history to the field. I bring archaeology. I bring now a lot of classics training, too, so I can be interdepartmental and interdisciplinary in a wide in a wider range of ways, and I think that that is something that is going to be a new reality in academia going forward. You need to be able to specialize in thir- certain things, but you also need to be able to um, connect with a lot of other disciplines, even within the same subfield. So.
1: Yeah, and I think as the fields evolve and as we become more interdisciplinary, I, I mean, I've seen so much change just between when I started at school in 2013 and then graduating in 2018 and seeing some of my friends take on more things and they're like, oh, I didn't realize I was going to mix these two or want to have these two things together, but they just did because it was needed. So I want to come back a little later to hear more about your your archaeological projects because they sound really awesome. But quickly before that, when you say I'm into ancient history to any random person who does not have familiarity with the academic pursuits in ancient history. I think there's the perception that that just means you study all of ancient history, all the civilizations, everything. What time periods would you consider ancient history, one? And two, please tell us, does that actually mean you study all of ancient history? Because that's a lot.
2: It is definitely not the case that you are studying all of ancient history. And any type of academic framework is going to have to be defined in a particular way i do go a bit more broad in terms of cultural comparisons in these things than you would typically do in a lot of you know classics associated disciplines but you still have to pick and choose which of the ancient cultures that you're actually going to look at and for my purposes i usually close out the latest that i will teach anything is up until the rise of the Byzantine Empire. So I'm actually shutting down pretty much everything by the time we get up to the late 500 CE or the early 600 CE. I just do not teach much after that. But then before that, I am charged with picking and choosing how much of even prehistory I expose students to, and then which cultures I am going to highlight. And there is a process with that, in that you need to be open enough to show that it is not just the Mediterranean world, or Greece and Rome or this, that you have to actually engage with these other things, but I'm not going to have the level of specialization in some of these other cultures that I would say in Rome or Greece. But I make sure that my students understand that. But I think that there is value in being able to do some degree of comparison and showing the various connections because a lot of times students will be surprised that, oh, they were taught this part of it over here maybe in a a classic scholars or some kind of Greco-Roman context. But when you actually look at some of these connections or some of these other places in the world, you know, whether it be the connections to ancient India, I do use a lot of Scheidel's modeling for comparisons with China. Um, I do do some things in terms of even Native American tribes when I can um, and different part, you know, the America's different cultural tradition. But I also have to also figure out what can you actually effectively deliver and at what level. And what I will also say, there's a choice based on the level of specialization that at a certain level, when it is a more uh, kind of overview or survey class, you can sample more things and they're all kind of taught at a similar level. But I'm not going to go up to the higher levels of grad you know, studies and then start trying to do certain things in you know, ancient Chinese history or ancient India, or I am trying to expand my knowledge in those areas, but I am making choices at the level in which the class is delivered as to what can be delivered at a comparable level for that particular course level. And so I acknowledge that I am a Roman specialist, but I am making sure that every single year I am expanding the different approaches from these other cultures. But I pretty much stop all, chronologically, I'm pretty much shutting everything down by the late 500s or the early 600s CE. But I am touching on different aspects of human history at any time period prior to that in a lot of different geographical contexts.
1: I think that's perfectly acceptable because there's a lot of ancient history to cover. I mean, when you're starting at like, if you're starting with like Mesopotamia or Egypt, I mean, that's already what, like 3,000 years, you have to get through 4,000 years. And then you have to get some of, after we start counting forward, zero. So that can be a tough decision.
2: And it is always a very difficult choice as to what you include and to what you leave out. But what I will say is even in the study of Greek and Roman civilization, those choices are made as well and they have consequences. What do you choose to highlight in those civilizations? What do you choose to leave out? And what I try to do is make sure that the students have enough understanding of the traditional package of a lot of this stuff. Then I like to do a lot of what's called deliver some of the traditional and then disrupt. What are the new ways to think about looking at these things? What different perspectives and levels of society Can we actually apply different methodologies to, to get a better understanding? And I think that it's important to show how it has been traditionally delivered, but then also show the issues around it because that is a teaching tool that you can see how history is being crafted or how different approaches to these civilizations, what's being emphasized and what's not and why and the implications of that. And so I make sure that I try to get my students enough grounding in the traditional format, but always with this eye on where can I disrupt and where can I approach a different aspect of society or power from a different perspective and level to show you know what is going on there? Because that's where I actually think the value can be for our society. None of this matters unless you're able to apply something from the study of antiquity to make you think about okay if these people were facing this then how might i apply some of these things to at least think about my own society my own situation of existence you know it's not that history repeats that's that, you know that's a fallacy but you can have these things where some things have enough connection or there's a minor echo or a ripple effect that sometimes things people faced in the past you might be able to learn from and apply in some meaningful way in the present and that's where the value the didactic purpose of, you know, the study of history or the study of classics actually comes from. You know, if you if you don't have some ability to learn something from that, it is then largely just an exercise in looking at the past without really critically thinking about it. So um, that's yeah. kind of what I try to do in all my classes. I
1: well, I have to say, I applaud you for even going into when the clock turns to CE because <laughs> most people, and, and it's maybe just the, the pace of, the semester or something about just your volume of the material when you're in something as big as the classical world during the fifth century. But I just remember so many of my classes at Mizzou, we started the semester like, okay, we're going to get through all the way up to the third century BCE. And I was like, okay, that's that's a that's a good amount of time to get through. I hope we do it. What would always happen is we'd get bogged down in everything before definitely get bogged down in the 5th century. And then you would rush into the Hellenistic period and be like, okay, this is our 4th century. We're doing it really fast. Yada, yada, yada. It's Alexander the Great. Rush, rush, rush. And then you'd be lucky if you even got to the end of the 4th century. And I'm like, well, no wonder it's hard. You're picking and choosing, but it's just so much. So the fact that you can even make it past, well past the Hellenistic period is, is impressive.
2: It does also have to do with my course load. I'm allowed to kind of frame things and teach things on a cycle. So some things will be repeated, but I actually have fairly wide diversity of semester long courses. And so, you know, I will have, you know, kind of, okay, here we're going to look at, you know, maybe archaic and classical Greece or something like that. And then I have, a course, it's just the Hellenistic world, you know, that's all it is, you know. And then I've actually, basically the way it was done here, even the Roman sequence, it's a higher level class. So it is a bit slower and more in depth in terms of detail. But I actually do kind of Roman history over a three semester sequence, so I'm actually dividing it. So it's not trying to cram. There's one course I have at kind of a mid level where it is. Let's see what we can do in a basic Roman world class pick and choose in a semester. But that's a different level class. The actual Roman survey that I do is generally done over a full three semester cycle. So I will do, you know, kind of framing the origins of Rome and then the Republic. And then I will kind of do the first part of the empire and kind of view that kind of, and then I will get into okay, here's the later part of the empire, and then here's this period of transformation as we get into this idea of late antiquity and you know, eventually, and that I will eventually touch on the the rise of the Byzantine Empire within that context as well. But I do that on a fairly consistent three semester rotation. And then the other classes have different levels, and I do pick and choose. And I've, you know, now of course is on ptolemaic egypt and i'm building a you know a different course on egypt and then i have a lower level intro course that is more of a familiarized incoming students with different aspects of the ancient world from all over the globe because the reality in the american system a lot of these students coming in they know nothing about a lot of these periods of antiquity a lot of these very significant ancient cultures and ancient empires they have no experience whatsoever and so even if i'm just going to be able to get them an overview two to three week segments as I move from thing to thing. I think that there is value there so that many of these students who have no backing at all can now at least understand that there are these things going on in all over the globe in these different places. When you pack that in, you do have to make these choices. What gets put in, what gets left out, and you have to uh, uh, kind of adjust for the consequences of that because you are covering a lot of time, a, a large period of time, and then a lot of different geographies. And not and a lot of scholars do not like that. They just say, you can't do it at the depth, you know, should be able to do with that. I understand those concerns. I try to compensate for that as much as possible by being realistic with what can be delivered and at the level it needs to be delivered. But as I said, I'm making those choices also based on the level of the class, But if something's an overview by the nature of the class, a lot of those students wouldn't understand anything about Greece or Rome anyway. And you're going to deliver all of this material comparatively, in kind of this larger civ course or something like that. And in that, at that level, you can integrate it in a lot of other cultural traditions. And I think the students actually like when they can make those comparisons and they're all kind of done at this overview level, but that's a lower level class. And then as you advance through the higher level classes, that is when the detail and the complexity of the civilizations is brought forward. But it's also important to remember those lower level classes are to actually inspire interest amongst the students that's how you hook students into wanting to explore the classes at the higher level so it's not just the content of any individual class you do need to think about what subjects are available for instruction across multiple years and that's how the curriculum you know needs to be designed effectively to inspire interest and that's what we want to do inspire interest in the ancient world and that I've done a lot of different things in my life that have contributed to that. So let's put it that way.
1: Yeah. Uh, And then I finally get to come back to this a little bit, um, but could you briefly touch touch on just your archaeological work in Italy?
2: Yes, I started digging over there. I think my first year there was the summer of 08. And I've been every summer since for extended periods with the exception of COVID. And I do not think it's going to work this summer just because of the way things are in Italy's current situation. But this is an interesting site that the superintendency had kind of identified some possibilities there. As I said, the woman that made contact with me at UCOA had done something, I think, in 07. So she'd been there before with some colleagues of hers, and they were evaluating a situation where there had been a collapsed church over many centuries, kind of built, rebuilt, knocked down. And I think in the early 1900s, an earthquake had knocked it down. It had been sitting there for most of the 1900s. You know, it was a medieval church, so they thought. You know, it had different periods where it functioned as different things, but from the early 1900s, it just been kind of sitting there in rubble. And they decided the town, um, I mean, it's almost in dead center in the middle of Italy, up in the Apennine mountains. The town uh, with, it was on church property and the town decided, well, let's rebuild this thing to have weddings and such. They weren't necessarily gonna make it the town church, but they wanted a venue beautiful up on this hillside and they take a bulldozer and start clearing away the rubble to rebuild the church and lo and behold buried into the hillside they kind of cut through part of three walls of a roman villa and then once they'd kind of done that they still rebuilt the church they um, had called in you know the archaeological superintendency to evaluate this when i started digging there we could see certain walls that were definitely, most of the evidence looked like Roman imperial, but the foundations had some older elements. There were some materials, even in the the basic survey, that went back to, say, 800 BCE. So we knew that there was long-term habitation on this hill, and we could see kind of, you know, early imperial levels. It looked like there was stuff on top of that that would have been, you know, late antique. I started going with students when I was still at UCLA in 08. And then when that person chose to do other things, then I attached um, with my current dig director um, at the University of Rochester. And we've been digging ever since up until we could not go this last year. The site is close to done, but we uncovered different elements. So we have Republican foundations for this villa, different imperial phases, lots of levels of destruction. There's a late antique phase that seems to suggest kind of you know, after the transition in late antiquity, we see Ostrogothic control in parts of Italy, you know, as the Byzantines are in there kind of dealing with the Ostrogoths in various ways, and then kind of the Lombards come in. And then the site itself seems to have met a pretty high level of destruction, maybe the 600s or 700s, you know, it, it's still being debated and there's a lot of movement up the hill. But then we had intended, the goal was originally, we were looking for votive deposits. And at that particular level, with a religious site there, even though it was in a Christian context, um, there were other sites around that were kind of ancient sanctuaries that had yielded a lot of different, you know, kind of um, religious connections, a lot of votive pits and deposits. And that's what my dig director was hoping she could find. We never did find any of that. But as we were looking for that stuff and doing various surveys, wound up digging in plow zone on the backside of the church a little bit too long and then digging down on some other areas, just not really comfortable with what we were finding on the backside of the church. And then after a very frustrating season, decided to dig down in a small test pit, very narrow, far down as I could with shovels, still couldn't find much. And then we had this small core element that had been left there. From years past it's kind of a core almost looks like an ice core thing by hand and i used to work as a lineman how i got hurt was working on power lines and we had you know big augers and things like that and i'm like well i guess it's time for me to dust out my old lineman skills and i started by hand cranking down on this hand auger and when i pulled it up we saw the remnants of human you know uh, materials essentially the, almost a the crumbling those, you know a small core But that's how we know that there was habitation at least 4,000 years back. And we had been digging on that um, in recent years as well. And we found some interesting remains from the 2000s BC. So people have been off and on living on that hill for at least 4,000 years, maybe even 4,700 years. And so we have different things in the museum now in terms of like hand thrown fish scale pottery and all kinds of stuff that's very, very old. And the museum just loves that. What I will say is I do get great pleasure. You know, I like teaching, I like doing my historical work. I love, you know, working um, with various classic students in various capacities, but I get rejuvenated every summer when I can dig in the field. And I now have, you know, I've been doing that for 10 summers and the local museum now has a lot of that material on display. And so I have all kinds of different material there from various phases of Roman history and even, you know, late antique, a period with the Ostrogoths and Lombards. And that's, you know, another reason that when I actually go to teach a lot about late antiquity, that's where I actually have a lot of my most direct archaeological material. So I'm bringing a lot of that archaeological influence into the history classroom. And then now that I'm going to start, you know, doing some more things um, with the current, you know, kind of classics department that will also kind of manifest there as well. Um, It's been a wondrous experience. And what I will say long after I'm gone, the materials that I dug up, as long as that museum's still standing, will be there somewhere, you know, so that I take great pride in being able to bring that type of new evidence to light. And that can be enjoyed, you know, by people daily as they go through these local museums. So it's been just kind of a wonderful experience. And it helps me in how I frame history because I'm not just looking at the texts and, and what the ancient authors are saying or what some scholars are saying you know, now. I, I'm looking at what the material culture can actually say and it's a limited form of communication But sometimes, even though it's very limited communication, that material culture can be a little more faithful to presenting a window of information than even what's written. Because too many times, I think in the classics tradition, there's so few sources, they're treasured so much, they're viewed as almost sacred text, and it's not always taken into account how distorted those texts are. Or a lot of times, the things that are written in there are deliberate deceptions, or they are sometimes made up stories that are not, you know, in any way historical truth. They're maybe meant to represent a larger truth, but a lot of times what is actually being translated from Greek or Latin, it's meant to be false by the people writing it back when for specific reasons within that cultural context. And and that's where I like the archaeology sometimes to give a different voice and put a little bit of a check on the image that's being painted from antiquity from a particular perspective that often distorts the truth.
1: Yeah, I think that's really cool. I think it's really interesting, and it must definitely feel nice to know that you've contributed in some significant way so people can go see things that you've dug up, hopefully, years and years after... Well, after uh, I'm gone, hopefully. Right. So, okay, so now we have the academic background that you bring. Now we have this picture of this great, awesome archaeologist gig you've got going every summer. I think I read or saw somewhere that while you were still at UCLA, that's when you were approached to consult for the, what is it, HBO Spartacus series?
2: At the time, it was Star's Spartacus series. Now it is probably available on Netflix. It comes, you know, with Netflix, everything comes and goes. But yes, I did as a grad student, as a single father, and I did have full custody of my daughter. So imagine actually going through graduate school as a single father of a teenage girl. Uh, It was, it was an interesting experience. Yes, I did uh, four or five years of consultation on the Spartacus star series um, that, uh, and so that's its own experience. Yes.
1: I think a lot of scholars and a a lot of early career academics who may not want to go the traditional teaching route uh, into traditional state academia. I think a lot of people sort of dream of getting picked up and asked to do historical consulting work for a big film or TV franchise or something exciting. What was the experience like? Because I know that when getting into Hollywood you're taking straight up history, which is what we like, we like our history, into the realm of edutainment, which is always a very sticky thing because we want things to be right, but we know we can't get all the details. So what was it like trying to cram history in, but also keep in mind like, yeah, these creators are gonna do what they wanna do.
2: It was for me, a very interesting and good experience overall, but has also created its own opportunities since. That said, I do realize the challenges posed when a historical period is repackaged by Hollywood or other media entities and all of the distortions that will come about because of that process. And so there were things that were very frustrating. Overall, it was a very good experience to me. And I will say, even with the various distortions that can be created, I have had a lot of very eminent scholars We all know the distortions, but when you can actually inspire interest in the ancient world, to a lot of people in the public that know nothing about it, you can actually get them to start to engage sometimes at a higher level where they inquire for themselves that, okay, the show is presenting it this way. What do the the sources actually say about this? And I was able to run a blog while the show was running and other things to where everything that was a distortion in the show I could actually go out and engage with the public at a fairly good level, get back and forth with them on, Okay, here's what the sources are saying. Here are the limitations with this view. The challenge was something like Spartacus is that the first season, I think wound up being 13 hours long, but the way that they wanted to structure it, that's a handful of lines at most from the ancient sources. So I am having to take all of my knowledge from various time periods of Roman history, various contexts of the gladiatorial world, and then figure out how do we best synthesize this in around a a period of Spartacus's life that very little is known about from just a handful, like literally just scraps, that if it's just fragments, and you have to basically deal with 13 hours, you know that you're going to have a lot of things coming in from a lot of different periods. And all of the television shows have to do this, all the movies have to do this. That said, I was able to insert a lot of kind of historical nuggets and Easter eggs in there in a lot of different places that even some eminent scholars may even find a hard time identifying the specific reference, but I have a lot of names, a lot of allusions, I'm able to integrate context from the prescriptions of Sulla and things like that into the show in weird background ways to kind of spur a conversation. And what I have found at a lot of conferences, there are going to be some scholars that truly despise when Hollywood takes those type of liberties. They, they want everything to be a documentary. They have to realize 90 some odd percent of the, popul- the population doesn't want a documentary that they don't have the, you know, that that's not what they are going to be inspired by. You have to kind of make, you know, these choices. Uh, But I have had a lot of eminent scholars around the world contact me that they can use different pieces from the show. You have to be careful because the content is so, they were trying to push the bounds of TV when it was filmed and they were doing a lot of things then that wouldn't even be considered acceptable now by our current kind of societal mores and standards, but this is a little bit before Game of Thrones kind of tenor of things have changed, but they were pushing the boundaries of what TV would allow on the cable networks. But even with that, there are valuable scenes that can be discussed in a variety of ways that can be used to say something. And that actually engages a greater cross section of students than you might think. And once you get them hooked, then you can get those students to actually read Plutarch <laughs> or actually read, you know, the fragments related to story, you know, and, and and then we discuss how those stories are distorted, how we, you know, stor- historians want to hammer back on, oh, the show of Spartacus made all of these distortions about Spartacus. I can make the argument that when you look at the ancient sources, the Romans constructed the vision about Spartacus that probably had nothing to do with the actual figure of who and what Spartacus was. The other grad student I was doing this with Aaron Irvin, we would have a lot of these conversations and we were able to do some um, DVD extras and some other things to actually put bring these points to light. And it would inspire interest at a higher level. And while some scholars push back against that, I have had a lot of eminent scholars all over the world that they like the fact that it's inspiring interest but when you get the students in front of you engaging with that that is when you have to expose them to kind of the more methodological approaches to ancient history and classics and archaeology but it can be a very useful tool if deployed properly and I think it's very important for the resonance of our field to keep that popularity and interest in ancient history and classics growing by a variety of means and I think that's absolutely essential For the survivability of our field going forward.
1: Quick question, what is, if you have one, your favorite little Easter egg that you slipped into the show for classicists that maybe most of us would recognize or enjoy?
2: Well, even in the, the basic trailer for the show, even though it's a later context, it wouldn't apply to the type of individual Spartacus was. I was able to insert a direct source quote from Petronius. It's more or less the model to the trailer of the show. So there are things coming from descriptions about a gladiatorial oath that become the main kind of short snippet trailer. That, that one should be obvious to any of it. But I actually like some of our discussions of Sola and the prescriptions in some of the later seasons. I put in references to certain various names. I think they're even, you know, playing some ancient games and some other things. You know, there's just lots of different things that are going on there. That said, people do need to realize that what was put into the script and what could be commented on, basically, when I was in Southern California with all of the writers, that that then got filtered through, I probably worked 30 plus different writers over all of the years, and each episode had a different writing team. Imagine going into a classroom for a basic lower level class, and then you have a discussion section of 20 people that, 20 or 30 people that knew nothing about that that was what was working with the Hollywood writers was like. It was trying to teach them a little bit about Roman history and Spartacus, and then they would go off in teams, whether it's two, three, or four, and then they would start crafting these episodes, and then it would be overseen by a showrunner, and then that's just the script, and Aaron and I would make all kinds of comments on the script, and some things would absolutely horrify us that we would see on the script, and we kind of just had to come to the conclusion, well, their show, we're giving them the real information, and then even once that's processed, then it was sent down to New Zealand to film. And then it had a whole different process down there. And I had no input on what was actually happening down there in terms of what was being filmed. Pronunciation of different terms. The costumes were also being done by costume people. And some things it did very well. But I could do a lot of consultation, but you cannot control everything. And then there would be things that would go down there. And then we'd see them on film coming months back. And it was never going to be reshot. And Aaron and I just look at it and we shake our heads and we just realized it was what it was. I will still say the overall effect I still think was positive in inspiring interest. And even as fast as everything changes now in terms of media platforms and content, I still have students right now in classes that really do like different aspects of that show. And that show is now very, very old. Like there's so much content that happens so fast. It's like old news. And then that show also then afforded me the opportunity to appear as a talking head in that Netflix um, series where I could come on in more of a historical capacity to some extent with a lot of other very prominent scholars and kind of be seen as a talking head um, in season one of Roman Empire. That said, there were a variety of issues with that. My experience in the field in Italy and doing some work in class on amphitheaters on the gladiatorial world, made me viable when I responded to the admin the position for the Spartacus series and then you have to go through a long interview process and they didn't want some super established scholar that was very set in their ways they actually wanted somebody that was experienced enough but young enough to actually understand the vision of what they wanted to do with the stylized filming they wanted it to look more like a video game they were going for a different younger crowd very different from HBO's Rome they were targeting something different but they wanted you know, a decent amount of historical context. And what I will say is that for all of its problems, it has been, you know, reviewed even by fairly prominent stars, you know, Ivy League stars and elsewhere that I think one of the quotes was it, it, it displays a surprising level of historical accuracy for what it is or something like that. It's some kind of odd quote that, that they could see what we were able to put in there historically wrapped up in the Hollywood pomp and circumstance of what they were trying to do with their show. But overall, it was a very, very interesting experience. It was frustrating at times, shall we say, though, from a the historical point of view. So it, it, in that sense, but it also afforded me other opportunities.
1: Okay, there's, a, there's so much that I want to unpack there. Um, but the first thing that I, I guess I, I really want to bring up is, okay, so I understand wanting a younger grad student or two to understand what they were going for, who's not very married to their subjects and their their specific ways of doing things. But that begs the question, these are pretty well off the Hollywood studios. Can there be something said to the fact that they also wanted grad students because they didn't want to pay a lot of money to hire someone very established as well?
2: That could be a lot of it as well, without question. But there had been times where they had tried in other capacities to hire different levels of academic, you know, from high to low. It wasn't that they necessarily targeted one way or another, I think, early on. They were looking at a lot of different things. And I actually asked my advisor, I asked my advisor straight up, if I do this, and it has all of these distortions, is that going to come back and damage me or my reputation in the future. I asked him that before going on. He actually kind of laughed and said, he was not concerned. He said, take the opportunity. You never know where this will lead. And right now you don't have a reputation to worry about anyway. So that is the quote there. So I will be forever thankful for Ron for that. He basically said, do it. Now, what I had to do though, is they wanted a certain amount of hours while I was early in my graduate school career devoted to that. And they offered me the job at one level, at one level of pay, and I told them I could not take that, that level, at that level pay for those hours while trying to do grad school. And that is when they came up with this idea: okay, we can get multiple people and we can share this. That it actually, you know, we actually kind of there was a back and forth that I had early on in that process, and so there were kind of choices made there. They don't have unlimited budgets; they do not. And there, you know, I liked the money I made. I had more early and then less as it went on, but it was also a long-term thing. But I also did have a, I was a single parent with a daughter I had to take care of. So this was an extra graduate student funding capacity that for all of its issues has actually afforded me a lot of other opportunities, a lot the final product for all of its issues, Aaron and I were able to tell them what the sources say, the historical issues are around these sources. They had the information. It's just then imagine a matter of what they are going to put in those shows. And it was always going to be that level of distortion. And we just had to reconcile with that, that there were going to be these things. But I still think in my conversations with a lot of different, very, very prominent scholars, that at the end of the day, it was a net positive. Other scholars won't agree with that. I have had pretty good experiences at most academic conferences. And believe me, believe it or not, a lot of times people will want to discuss that stuff more so than the various papers being delivered. Believe it or not, it's a higher level of conversation than people think. You know, there's room for everything, but you have to make sure that you provide the proper context or in a classroom for all of the distortions that are there in these types of popular representations. Inspiring interest matters. And I just, I think that it has been for me, a net positive overall. And people actually know at conferences, a lot of people in a lot of places actually know that I've done it. And they've seen me talk on it. And I've even been recognized, I think from the Netflix thing in random bars in Italy. At times, strangely enough, people would watch something on whatever. and So it's kind of an odd thing that I've actually had that happen before. so. So.
1: So you got this fabulous opportunity that a lot of people would love to be able to have done. Luckily for you, early on, when you were still a grad student, how much would you say that experience impacted and opened doors to other historical consulting jobs and, you know, as someone who has now done it and on something pretty significant, you know, it wasn't just some small little two-bit thing that, okay, you know, thanks. But, you know, it was a pretty big thing. There's this perception that if you get something big, then suddenly everyone in Hollywood will know that show, know your name, and you'll be the first person that they think of if they want to do something Roman. I'm sure that is not the case, but as someone who is considering, well, how do I become that serial historical consultant because I want to do that as my job. Is it something that could be self-sustaining as a career or does it not open that many doors?
2: Error on the side of it's, it's going to have limited opportunity. I don't think that you could make a career on that. And I have not. My career is actually, you know, doing what I'm doing as an ancient historian, teaching in my classes, doing my research and digging in the field. But there are these opportunities that can come up. and And Spartacus itself, doing it for those years it did give a certain recognizability and profile for me at a variety of conferences like people at least were familiar and they knew that i was doing it so i could have various conversations and those that would open up a variety of other opportunities it led directly to being at least recruited to be one of the talking heads on this roman empire thing on netflix so the one because they'd seen me in one capacity on dvd extras and knew i was a consultant for spartacus and they liked my delivery was different than the way that a lot of other academics from around the world would deliver. And they wanted a mixture of voices. You know, they wanted people to connect with different types of audience. And I think I was kind of chosen to do kind of a down to earth connection, even though the way I come off in that, you know, the way I was filmed, I sound a little bit different than I normally do. And so, you know, it just, when you're being filmed, it's a little bit different than talking in a normal environment or even in a classroom environment. The Spartacus led directly to basically giving, being able to be someone giving a historical commentary on a Roman empire, the reign of blood when I was in season one. I also did some consultation work via one of my former students who wound up working in some field and and she was actually asking questions, Nat uh, Nat Geo, um, they were doing something on Galen and they wanted something about the gladiatorial world and like the medical, you know, how to assess that. And so I was actually giving some degree of kind of back channeled historical consultation to a student of mine who then was actually working through that. And that got filtered in um, that way as well. I I have known other scholars that have been approached, things connected to Homer that are always in the works. And you always hear these things. And I was approached for something related to Homer. At one point, it wasn't going to work out based on what was going on. And I'm not sure of the status of that. But a lot of these projects will be in the work for years. And you don't know always which ones will be executed and which ones will not. And some do better than others. Some things just become complete disasters. Like say that 3D Pompeii movie. I just find that just like a a total disaster and they don't seem to have any real historical consultation going on in that thing at all. um, Even though they put in a lot of different stuff. You don't know how it's going to play out but you do wanna take advantage of as many opportunities as you have. Because I asked my advisor, should I do this or not? And he, he, he had he waffled, And had I not taken that, I would have lost out on the four years of doing that. My profile was probably expanded by doing that show. I would probably not have appeared in Netflix. I would probably not have done the consultation on that geo. So just that one choice, do I take a more kind of nervous or worried approach to what this might do to my reputation? Or do I actually gamble and actually see what we can do with this? And I also take pride in the fact that had I not accepted doing that, who knows what they would have settled on. And the amount of history that I was able to get spliced into that series is actually a very, very high amount. And had somebody else done it or had they chosen to go a different direction, that show may have looked completely different. And so for all of its issues, historically, there is a lot of historical elements there that I think are valuable. And what I will say, even in terms of resonance, that thing was seen, once it started to grow, it, the early episodes had some issues. It's called what's called pilotitis, I think, in the, in the industry where the early episodes have some problems and they're working out the kinks. It probably would have had even greater impact had Andy Whitfield not come down um, with his disease and uh, died prematurely. So the show was used to massive turnover. It did kill off a lot of character lines, but when the person actually tapped to Boy Spartacus, suffers, you know, this in real life. And I met Andy a few times for him to have actually, you know, died and and had a recasting that disrupted some of the flow of the show. And I, I had to do a lot of adjustments in creating, help creating a prequel made up of fragmentary material before, you know, in kind of a black hole historically. But that season was actually interesting as we were trying to give him time to recover and it didn't go. I just think that the choice that I made to do that was a net benefit and it was seen at its height by millions of people per week. That was a significant thing then and it does have its own resonance. And it did inspire, I guarantee you, it inspired a lot of people worldwide to actually go read some of the ancient accounts, to actually take an interest in not just Roman history but ancient history and classics in general. And so the inspiration effect is important and some scholars might deny that a little bit too much at their own peril in terms of overestimating the resonance of what we do with the larger population.
1: Yeah, I think that's all really good, really valid, um, really valid points. I cannot emphasize the power of the pop culture element enough. And one of those things is we have so, so many movies and shows based on ancient Rome. Take your pick of which one and somebody's done it. Having been a consultant on a lot of different things now, if somebody wanted to come and make some movie or TV show about any period of Rome or any specific topic, what's something that hasn't been done, period, or that hasn't been done a lot in depth that you would love to see done and like dream consulting job?
2: After Spartacus was over, I did meet briefly at a few different functions, Lucy Lawless, because she was playing a prominent character in the Spartacus show. And her husband was actually, Rob Topper was actually kind of in charge of filming and production down in um, New Zealand. And he'd actually approached me with something like this. And he actually wanted to do something a la Nero and some other things. But then we kept hearing that maybe HBO and the BBC were going to partner and dust off like I, Claudius as a template, but then maybe extend it to go to Nero. So we kept hearing all of these things. And I did submit some stuff, where we were going to play around with a good modern update of Nero being Nero. Now, that's, it's not like that hasn't been done, because you have all of these classical movies that just do, you know, try to play around with Nero and things like that. But I do think that Nero in that type of period, between, with all the things that happened there, I think it would make for a good series or movie that could do a modern update. Or if they do try to reboot I, Claudius, I think that that would always be very, very fun. So we'll see if that happens or not. That said, I think that there would be some things that could even be done, you know, under the reign of Trajan or something like that. And, you know, kind of the wars in Dacia and elsewhere. I think that you could do something with that that I think would be very interesting. And, you know, and, and off the top of my head, I'm not thinking of anything pop culture wise or otherwise, where somebody has tried to look at, say, that, you know, something going on there. There are probably the various stories from the Republic. But the farther back in time you go, you know, you get into... The whole issue is that a lot of it kind of becomes legendary anyway, based on the limitations of the sources. I would actually be intrigued if somebody could do something on Trajan, but I actually tried to push that we could do something with Nero updated. It just didn't contact it, and it just didn't. It just didn't quite materialize. So these things happen. You can get these types of enter, entertaining dynamics, and I know that there are a lot of different emperors from the Roman period some more known, some lesser known that I think would make good fodder. And that's the good thing about the Roman side. I wish though that people would figure out a way to explore kind of ancient Greece a bit more in movies. They've done it here and there. You get the mythological things. But on the historical side, I think there's a lot to work with there. And I don't have a good explanation for why the ancient Greek world has not appeared on screen quite the same way that the ancient Roman. I mean, I understand some of the larger issues, but I think that there is a plenty of room to do that even from a more historical approach rather than a mythological approach, for whatever reason, it just hasn't materialized in the same way. But so, you know, any of the very prominent, you know, ancient Greek scholars, if they could figure out a way to do this beyond just something Homeric or, you know, to try to do it in a different period of kind of classical Greek history, I think would be very, very interesting.
1: So that's music to my ears, because anyone who knows me knows that my side hope passion project is I love Themistocles. He is my boy, and they did him so wrong in the 300 terrible. sequel. It just it's unwatchable. I have always dreamed of doing something to sort of say, hey, let's do a whole miniseries on the life of and career of Themistocles. I mean, to grow up and then to be a great hero and then to eventually die because you're an outcast and like the guest of the Persian king I'm like come on there's so much meaty material why are we not doing this so I think definitely I agree with you we need to do more Grease things we need to do something on Themistocles so please 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 Hollywood get on that. We've covered a lot of how I think ancient material, especially ancient Rome, captures our human imagination, especially in the U.S. and the U.K., just because of the histories. And I think to some degree, we sort of see ourselves as the heirs to Rome in certain aspects. It's but, a
2: problematic legacy, but yeah, I understand what you're saying with that particular assertion. It's really filtering and bubbling up with a lot of issues now. So, yeah.
1: yeah. And just in terms of like other places, like, I don't want to say quite unconventional, but just other places that most people might not think about it resonating. And this is a kind of fun way to type back to your unique path and coming up in the military. I think, you know, I I have family members who serve in the military, and I have some military friends, and I know that classical influences and symbols are really popular there. Does it strike you as like a natural thing that if you serve abroad and you're anywhere near the Mediterranean, that even if you aren't gonna become a scholar in this stuff like that it really influences you because you you've been there or is it is there something just about this like militaristic culture of rome that is so appealing to you if you serve in the armed forces now because i know i see a lot of service members have like tattoos of the spqr eagle and other roman military insignia because hey it's rome it's cool it's militaristic.
2: In that sense, I think that we can look at a lot of these ancient cultures that emphasize a strong military ethos, whether it is Sparta, whether it is Rome, that that part of that identity construction from antiquity emphasizes this military ethos. And some of those same things that would have driven that type of identity construction in ancient times would probably bubble up in a variety of capacities, even in a modern political military environment. That said, we are now this many thousands of years removed, you know, society... You know, societies and cultures worldwide keep evolving, our relationship between power and violence and the use of military force and how it should be used. And that, that is also still evolving. But there is always going to be certain elements where the kind of aspects of a military ethos that are in many ways, some ways are valuable. You know, There, there are certain aspects of a military ethos that are very, very strong. There are also many negative aspects. I've seen them. I was in the military long enough to see both sides of this coin. There are going to be, I think, certain things about that that will resonate in any time period. And therefore, when you have an ancient rome with its you know particular ethos or you know something that looks somewhat similar you know in sparta's ethos that that is going to have a certain appeal i think that that is just part of it i do think that it's very important though that when that is brought out in a classroom or in a public environment as best I can, that you do try to contextualize a lot of that stuff and show kind of both sides of that issue, that it can have positive aspects over here, but it can also manifest in a lot of very kind of toxic ways if applied improperly. And what I've actually found even here, and it's interesting, I'm currently doing a course on ancient slavery. In that class, we did look at various types of servitude and slavery, and we were dealing with heritage in ancient Sparta and other things like that. And a lot of people that even went to schools that say have Spart- the Spartans as a mascot, you know, literally the Spartans, that what is emphasized about that are just kind of one set of that, you know, the, all of these kind of positive militaristic virtues about, you know, the kind of Spartan soldier in that way. A lot of the students were actually amazed when I showed them the other side of that society, the, you know, the whole thing is built upon kind of the helots and that very structure with under its mixed constitution and helotage and everything else. And it's important that they see what a lot of these societies were built on. And so, you know, that relationship, and that's one of the the disservices that a show like 300 does. It goes through all of that framing, all of the problematic cultural tropes and issues that it represents, and then tries to frame Sparta in a particular way in terms of liberty, never even shows or mentions a hella anywhere in that movie, as far as I can tell. Does not exist. Yet, if you think about Spartan society, Spartan society, as it was structured, could not have existed without that particular dynamic in that form. And so I think it's important in class that all of the different aspects of this are shown so that it can't be too idealized. that the military ethos isn't all that is emphasized or isn't all that is idealized. While still acknowledging the significance of it, how it is used, and some of the positive traits associated with that, while still acknowledging, you know, kind of all of the baggage that comes with that. And I saw that in the military in a variety of experiences. And I had a variety of experiences in the military, all kinds of experiences. So it, you know, both good and bad. So, you know, it's it's just kind of that dynamics. So.
1: Yeah, and I can imagine it would be hard because I think, you know, a lot of our modern drive here is classics should be and needs to be for everyone, whoever you are, whatever you do. We shouldn't be shutting people out because of we're afraid that they might get some totally whitewashed, horrible, wrong impression. Like, no, that's so wrong. It needs to be for everyone. As historians, as classicists, then do we have a duty to sort of call out and point out where we see things being sometimes misappropriated but sometimes just if there's that general ignorance of like you don't know what this is you don't know because you were taught or you think you know one way because it's just sort of in our culture oh i don't know what spqr means but you know it looked cool and i have this tattoo on me now you know is that our duty or i think that there are
2: times that You just need to approach everything trying to respect meeting your students where they're actually at, but that you do want to actually improve their understanding of the context of what they're looking at, make them understand how they're thinking about that has been shaped by other factors in their past. And that is why I am a a big fan of using a lot of these things in a way that can be taught constructively, where you can show some of the traditional portrayals. You can use that as a teaching tool to show how some of that was shaped and then the implications of that. And then I do try to make sure that I pick as many points as possible to disrupt that traditional narrative and use that disruption as a teaching tool for, okay, there are these other kind of you know, lingering issues or this baggage associated with this. And that baggage exists all throughout academia and kind of the modern academic tradition. And I do periodically bring that in. If you do too much of it, you will turn off a certain segment. If you do too little of it, you will turn off a different segment. And I'm always trying to balance what is the right approach to in good faith, try to connect different aspects of the ancient world with as wide of an audience as possible while still giving them legitimate contextualized information that can be useful. Because there are many different things that can kind of simultaneously be true and many different things that are kind of simultaneously false. And you do need to call out when it's appropriate to call that out. But you also kind of have to assess what is going on with the actual intent and content and agenda. And I've seen it all. I've seen where people where people have misappropriated it of different aspects of ancient history with a very targeted intent to damage, um, inflict harm, inflict emotional trauma, I have seen that done, where people pick and choose what they are going to deploy in terms of imagery, statement, or whatever, for a very strong ideological or political purpose. I've seen other people characterize things in a way that they were either ignorant of the larger context or had no, they just had no idea. So there you're looking at a different form of intent. And then I've also seen other people try to overcorrect on other sides where they try to constrain how certain things are viewed and they say well from a modern perspective we need to talk about it this way this way or this way they do not always have the full context of some of these issues in antiquity even in terms of okay with this terminology in this context whether it's latin or greek how do we actually address the full meaning of that what does this mean in terms of the structure of the society or the household or the larger context and i think that it is important to try to approach these things with good faith but to be as expansive as possible while presenting the material in a viable way that is fully contextualized as best you can. But no matter how well you try to do that, there will be times that you fail. But the point is that we think about how we do it. We think about how different information might be received by different entities. And then we also do try to assess if we think there is an agenda at play by somebody, how do we intervene with that? Because we do want to create a space where we are looking at this stuff, creating an environment where people can enjoy engaging with material from antiquity. But it is a learning process. It's an ongoing balance. The way that I do it this year was different than last year. It was different than five years ago, and it was definitely different than 10 years ago. And as I said, right now, even Spartacus that I was it had its issues at the time. There was certain blowback. I had my concerns over many, many things in it, both thematically and the way it was represented. It was a product of its time for those particular years and a transformation in the ancient cable or um, ancient history and just the cable television environment in general. That same show would probably not be made in that way now or definitely not delivered that way now. It's out there. You can It can be watched. It's still going to be there, but it would not be done the same way. And so that's an evolution that's taken place in our society just over a decade what was out there in that show at that time would no longer be done right now, just based on the changing mores. And I do like to say that even in terms of morality, a lot of what morality is, not everything about morality, but a lot of what morality is in antiquity or in our modern time is an ongoing negotiation across generations. And that's just the way that I approach that. And that process is always involved. So
1: I think that's a really good approach. I think there's some fear for, you don't want to offend people, but you do have to tackle really hard issues. So I think that- approaching it from the most historically informed educational way not to say you know not to go up to people and just say well you're wrong what you believe is wrong it's terrible but to just inform and say hey well if you didn't know this is historically blah 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 and I think that's probably the best way to go about it for the foreseeable future. It's interesting how things have evolved and how we we have to tackle these things. But I think we're doing a a better job now of kind of figuring out how to approach it as scholars, as the gatekeepers. And then you have things like Pharos, that website um, run by Vassar to to educate uh, the public, potential uh, misappropriation of classical symbols. So at the end of each podcast, I have each guest read the Shelley version of the poem Ozymandias. So if you could read the poem and then just what sort of initial thoughts come to your mind, it doesn't have to be the longest or most erudite thing. These are meant to be just very, this is my initial take of this.
0: Have Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,
2: Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing besides remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Now, in terms of what comes to mind with this, I'm actually thinking that one thing that appears to be something iconic and grand now that is under transition and maybe looked at later in a very different way is actually The current structure of academia itself and the academy as it is may look completely unrecognizable not all that far from now but it will be viewed in this kind of hollowed sense of this great iconic thing time passes transformation happens and eventually there could come a point where what we think of as current academic structure could have this type of resonance What are your thoughts on that one? Because that's kind of what comes to mind with me.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Two things, actually. One, it answered the last question I usually ask guests, which is, you know, what what do you think is a modern Ozymandias? And so I think academia is a perfectly legitimate and wonderful answer because it is always transforming. But also I think, yeah, it definitely gets to this idea of Whatever it is, whether it's a statue or a civilization or a current system, like the whole academic system, it gets to this idea of elegant decay where it's dying slowly, but then you're like, oh no, I want to save it in any way I can, but it's still dying. How do we prop it up? How do we give it crutches? And it's still dying.
2: But decay actually can facilitate new growth. And I think it's the new growth that is absolutely essential for what academia will look like in the future It is being transformed by a variety of factors that are outside of any academics control. And that is just part of the process. Academia didn't always look quite this way in the past, and it is under a great period of transformation right now.
1: Wow. Not pulling any punches, get right to the academia. It's going to change. I love it. I love it. Oh man. Thank you so much for, for joining me today. I mean, it's been such a pleasure to hear about your unconventional Path into ancient history and the classics and everything. I mean, it's just such a a unique career, a a unique life, honestly. And uh, finally, where where can people find you? I'm sure I, you know, for the movie stuff, they can probably just Google your name, but in the Yeah, if you're sense...
2: interested in making contact with me, I'm just at the University of Missouri in uh, the history department, um, Stevens, S-T-E-V-E-N-S, uh, J-E-F, at Missouri.edu. And I will respond to anybody's um, emails, but I have, for a variety of reasons, reduced my kind of public media platform footprint, especially in this uh, time period of COVID. I just uh, have not wanted to do that. But do feel free to contact me via email at the University of Missouri at the History Department.
1: Yeah. So if you would like a future po- potential historical consultation, you know where to come. You know who to ask. He's got pretty a
3: pretty cool portfolio. So yes, thanks again.
2: Thank you so much, Lexi.
3: Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, near them on the sand. Half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away.
2: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.